Amen. Um, now, some of you will know, um, just before the first lockdown, um, back uh, over a year ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife Rose and I, uh, were blessed uh, with the birth of our first child, um, Miriam, who was born about three weeks before lockdown started. And so she's now 15 months. And those 15 months have been characterized, as you'd expect, by joys and by challenges. So some great joys, of course, you know, watching your little daughter learn to walk at the minute. She's just got the buh sound, so book, bear, ball. She likes balls, so that's a real joy right now. But lots of challenges, moments where you're like, okay, when 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 it's dinner time, it's not that you pick the food up and throw it on the floor. That's not how dinner time works. Um, And you prepare yourself as much as you can for those kind of challenges. You know, think of things like sleep, sleep deprivation, etc., right? But what I wasn't ready for is that the greatest challenge of the last 15 months has been being brought face-to-face with my own selfishness. The greatest challenge for me of having um, our first child is being brought face-to-face with my own selfishness. Because you realize that before you had kids, a lot of the time Rose and I could both get what we wanted. Right? It's Saturday afternoon, you're both tired, you fancy a rest. No problem. Fast forward to the, the Miriam era, it's Saturday afternoon, you both want a rest. Someone's got to look after the baby. It's not how it works, right? And so a tension opens up, in my heart at least, between, between getting what I want, the rest that I want, maybe even in my head, the rest that I need, and giving myself to love and serve Rose and Miriam. Those are the specifics of my situation. Um, but my guess is that for each one of us, we know that tension. It might be in our marriage. It might be in a friendship. It might be in a dating relationship. It might be in a family relationship. We know that tension all over our lives between fighting to get what we want, getting what we want, and giving ourselves, giving up, giving in, and loving others. And we also know that if we're honest, our gut instinct is to fight. To fight to get what we want. And we know that doesn't work. A relationship between two people who are seeking to get their way, to rule over one another, that relationship's going to fracture and break. It might look like blazing rows and slammed doors, or it might look like a slow pulling apart, distancing, as you just give up on each other. You're just not going to give me what I want. But the good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, today's passage from the Song of Songs shows us another way. It gives us a beautiful picture of self-giving love. A self-giving love that results in joy and delight for the lover and the beloved. And it doesn't just give us a picture, it actually gives us the key to unlock that kind of self-giving love in our own lives, in our marriages, and actually in all of our relationships. So let's, let's dive in, and we're going to see um, that self-giving love, first of all, from chapter 7, uh, verses 9 to 13, a self-giving love. So um, in the passage we heard uh, Mark preach on last week, um, the husband was declaring in beautiful and passionate poetry his appreciation of his wife's beauty, his desire for her, and this week what we're hearing is the wife's response to what the husband has to say. So, so we're going to wind back very slightly, chapter 7, verse 8, this is the last thing the husband said. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. So he's saying he wants her mouth, her kisses, to be to him like the best wine. Delightful, delicious, intoxicating. 
And how does she respond, second part of verse 9? May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. In other words, she's saying, that's what I want too. You want my kisses to be like wine for you. I want my kisses to be like wine for you. But note that the focus is on the other. May the wine go gently to my beloved. She doesn't respond with, may your kisses be nice for me, (laughs) be like wine for me. She says, no, may, may my kisses be to you like the best wine. Okay, it's a self-giving love. It's an other-focused love. And then in verse 11, she calls her beloved to come away with her. Uh, back in chapter 2, we had that beautiful poem as, the, as the, 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 the man called, Arise, come with me. Let's see the signs of spring. And now in this chapter, the roles are reversed. It's the woman who's calling. She calls to him, Come, my beloved. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. She calls him out to her, to the countryside, to see the signs of spring baking through as a, as a picture of her beauty. She wants the world around them to sing of her beauty, her delights, her readiness. Why? Why does she call him out? End of verse 12, there I will give you my love. There I will give you my love. She longs to give her beloved her love, her her self, her very being. And again, do you see, she doesn't say, come away with me, because when we get to the, the, the countryside, I reckon you'll be up for giving me what I want. Or, or come away with me because then I think you'll, you'll be able to give me what I need to be fulfilled. She says, come away with me for there I will give you my love. It's a self-giving love. That's the same in verse 13. She tells her beloved, at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. So she's holding out to him this abundance. That's the new and old picture, an abundance of sensual and sexual delight and pleasure, all the most precious, most wonderful joys of intimacy together. She stored them all up for him, for you, my beloved. She longs to give him everything. This is a self-giving love. She delights in his delight. She rejoices in his joy. She's singing of the the pleasure of bringing him pleasure. A self-giving love. But you might say to me, okay, that's beautiful and it's hopelessly unrealistic. In, In the real world, the world we actually live in, if I really gave myself completely to someone else, if I really focused completely on someone else, then no one is going to look out for me. I'm not going to get my needs met. No one's going to, no one's going to, I've got to look out for myself. I put it to you that ultimately we're afraid. We're called forth by the beauty of this kind of self-giving, mutual self-giving, but we're afraid that if we give ourselves completely, who's going to be there for us? We won't get what we need. So what gives the wife in these verses the confidence to give herself completely to her husband, to seek his joy and his delight? 
What's the key that unlocks this kind of self-giving love in our lives? It's chapter 7, verse 10, if you've got it in front of you. Here it is. I belong to my beloved, she says, and his desire is for me. Stick with me for the next few minutes, and I'll show you why that's the key. Here we go. Okay. We've heard that kind of phrase before, right? This kind of possession, I'm my beloved's, and he is mine. But the new thing this time is this second part, his desire is for me. Okay? And the key there is that word desire. The Hebrew word that we're translating desire there appears three times in the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? Here, and twice in the early chapters of Genesis. So in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fall and turn away from God, God pronounces curses upon them. And in Genesis 3.16, he says this to Eve, your desire, that's the same word, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And then in Genesis chapter 4, God warns Cain, sin desires, same word, to have you, but you must rule over it. What's my point? My point is that in Genesis, this word desire is a word of curse. It's a word that, 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 that speaks of a desire to rule over, to get your own way with, to have your way with, to, in sin's case, to destroy. And so the curse of Genesis 3, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, that's the battle of the sexes in its nutshell. It's saying women will desire to rule over, to get their way with their husbands, but because on average a man's bicep is larger, your husband will rule over you sometimes tragically with an iron fist. That's the curse. That's the way desire, that word desire works in Genesis. But it's not how it's working in our passage, is it? In our verse, what's, what's become a word, what, what was a word of curse has become a word of blessing. So when the woman says, I'm my beloved and his desire is for me, she is rejoicing. She is celebrating and delighting in her husband's desire for her, the fact that he's captivated by her. He's committed to her. A word of curse has become a word of blessing. And that's because in the the idealized poetry of the song, that curse on the relation between man and woman, it's gone. It's been lifted. Why do they go to the countryside? Because they're back in the Garden of Eden. The curse is gone. The battle is over. They're not fighting to, to, to rule over one another. Instead, they are giving, each, giving themselves to one another. And it's that knowledge that the battle's over, that the curse is gone, that his desire is for her, for her alone, for her good. That is the key that unlocks self-giving love. Does that make sense? She, she's totally confident in his love, his desire, and that the curse of trying to rule over is gone. But that's the world of the song. What about the real world? Well, here's where it gets good for us, okay? Because we know that in the real world, that same curse, that Genesis 3 curse, has begun to be lifted through the work of Jesus. Jesus is lifting that curse. As our New Testament reading told us, Jesus' desire for us, his desire for our good was such that he made himself nothing, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave himself completely to you, to me. He gave himself in his death. And he took that curse upon himself on the cross. And through his resurrection and through the gift of the Spirit, he has brought in a new age of blessing that rolls back the curse. 
We sing it every Christmas. Enjoys the world, right? No more let sin or sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. Why? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so the key we need in our lives to unlock the self-giving love we see here is to participate in that lifting of the curse, but by receiving into our hearts the all-sufficient self-giving love of Jesus. It's that gift that lifts the curse. It's that love that drives out the fear that holds us back. That fear that unless we look after ourselves, no one will. That unless we fight to get what we want, we'll never have joy or satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is looking out for us. Jesus has died for us. His desire is for us to bring us joy, satisfaction that will never fade. We can say with complete confidence of Christ our beloved, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. And as we say that, as we rest in Christ's all-sufficient love, that will set us free for self-giving love. And for every single one of us, that starts by giving ourselves and everything we have to the Lord Jesus. If the the, the man is a figure of Christ, the, the woman is a figure of us. And so we're to say to Christ, I will give you my love. I will give you my love. We're to say to him, you know, you know my, my time, my gifts, my money, I've stored all that up for you so that I can give it all to you. I've stored it up for you, my beloved. We give, up, we give everything to Christ. And as we do that, we give ourselves to others. So if we're married, that means we give ourselves totally and completely to our spouses in all areas of our life. In here, in these verses, um, it's, it's talking about in the area of our sex lives. I will give you my love. And that means we are to give ourselves in that area. Self-giving should characterize our sex lives. And Tim and Kathy Keller put it like this in their excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage. They say, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it. Each partner in marriage is to be concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it. There's something the world doesn't offer. There's something the world has, has no category for when it comes to sex. Self-giving love in our sex lives and in the rest of our lives together, that means taking the bins out. It means finding someone to look after the kids. It means organizing a nice meal. And crucially, it means doing those things and not keeping score. Not being like, okay, great, I, I did a good thing. I'm one there up. <laughs> it's going to be my turn soon. No, we act out of self-giving love. And of course, there is something unique about the the kind of lifelong, total giving to one another that that is marriage. But actually, self-giving love is to characterize all of our relationships as Christians, whether we're married or single or divorced or whatever. Uh, That's what we heard in our New Testament reading. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who gave himself to us. And so we need to ask in our relationships with our families, with our church family, with our flatmates, with our friends, what would it look like for me to give myself in love to them? 
What would self-giving love look like? And that, of course, that's not going to become a reality if by just kind of rolling our sleeves up and trying harder. No, that happens as we're transformed by the spirit that turns curse into blessing. It happens as we rest consciously, deliberately, day by day, rest in the all-sufficient self-giving love of Christ. It happens as we say from our hearts, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. That's the key that will unlock self-giving love. So these verses show us a self-giving love. And secondly, and more briefly, they show us a frustrated love. A frustrated love. Chapter 8, verse 1. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed on my mother's breast. Then if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who had taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the nectar of my pomegranates. So so the woman is still seeking to give herself to her husband, but now the romantic getaway of the end of chapter 7 is over, and her desires are being frustrated. Did you hear that? If only you were to me like a brother, I would kiss you, I would lead you, I would give you spice trying to link. It's a world of if only, it's a world of I would. And, And that frustration culminates in that warning We've heard in the song before in chapter, um, in chapter 8, verse 4, it is this time. I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's a frustrated love. But to roll back a minute, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it? In, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, which says to her lover, if only you were to me like a brother. That doesn't sound great. The cultural context here is one where if you saw your brother on the street, you could show them a sign of sisterly affection, a, a kiss on the cheek. But if you see your husband on the street, you can't show them any affection at all, otherwise you're going to be despised. So, so while you know, public displays of affection is going to vary across time and across culture, the underlying point is his, her, her desire is, is to show her affection and love for her beloved whenever she sees him, and that desire is being frustrated. And I think we can read from, from this song that that desire is natural and good. She sees him and she wants to show her affection. And, and there's a couple of applications for us on that. So the first one is, is if we're married, that desire to show affection in public to our spouses, even when other people are there, that, that's a good desire. It's a healthy desire. We should do it, as the song indicates, within cultural boundaries, and probably within subcultural boundaries, right? Let's not push it to the extremes of 2020 London. And we should do it in a way that's loving and kind towards others. But it's natural that sometimes we're going to want to show our love to our spouses, even if there are other people there. In fact, these verses suggest that that's a natural first step on the road to a more private intimacy. You see the flow, right? If I found you outside, I would kiss you. Then I'd lead you and bring you into my mother's house. I'd give you wine to drink. And it culminates in verse 3. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Intimacy should be part of and flow from a broader life of affection. It doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts with a gentle touch to the shoulder, a kind word of encouragement or thanks. Reaching out to hold hands as you're walking home from something. And if we're not married here, well, you see a link, don't you, between the the desire for private intimacy and for kind of public recognition to some extent. She wants to be able to kiss him even if other people are watching. 
And again, that's healthy. And again, I think what that means is we need to be cautious of any desire for private intimacy that doesn't come with a desire for public recognition. So to be specific, what I mean is, and I've heard this lots of times, what I mean is I'm thinking of the thought that says, look, we're totally committed to each other. We're committed to each other for life. We, we love each other. We've given ourselves to each other. So what does it matter if we're actually married? That's just a piece of paper, right? Wrong. Marriage is a lot more than a piece of paper. And what, what that argument is trying to do is drive a wedge there between private intimacy and God-given public recognition in marriage. And our culture loves that wedge. I think it's that wedge is spot on because who, what is it anybody else's business what two consenting adults get up, to, get up to in the bedroom, right? There's no link between private intimacy and public recognition. Wrong again. And actually, we, we feel that's wrong in our guts. We know that while sex it should be private, it shouldn't be secretive, right? Sex has always been given for marriage within a broader social structure. It's part of the broader way that society runs. We see that actually in Genesis 2. The very first verse in the Bible on marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. There are four people in that verse. A man, his father, his mother, and his wife. It's always been part of a broader public social structure. And so what does that mean? It means that if you're not in a position to get married, then we need to hear the warning of verse 4. I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. But as we, as we close, I want us to take a step back for a minute and ask, what is this note of frustration doing here in the song? Because in chapter 6 and 7, we've got this picture of, of the lovers giving joy and delight to one another. And then suddenly, there's this jarring note at the start of chapter 8. If only you were like a brother to me. And I think it is meant to jar with us, to interrupt us. It's meant to actually snap us out of that kind of dreamlike Garden of Eden state that we've been in. And it pulls us back, doesn't it, into the real world where there are other people around. <laughs> there are people who might despise you. There are mothers. The lovers have come back into the real world, and that real world is one where things are not perfect. There's always frustrations, always a longing for more. And that's the world we live in, right? We don't live in a world where we're free from frustrations in our lovers and our desires. And that's because the curse we were thinking about earlier, that curse of, of ruling over, fighting to get our way, that hasn't yet been fully lifted. We're not back in the Garden of Eden. Instead, we live in the now and not yet between Jesus' first and second comings. Don't get me wrong, the, the curse is genuinely being lifted. Jesus' self-giving love poured into our hearts by the Spirit, it really does set us free to give ourselves to others. And yet sin remains. Of course it does. We still fight to get our way, to rule over others, to get what we want. And those we love still fight to get their way. None of our relationships are characterized by this pure, unspoiled, self-giving love. Whether we're married, whether we're single, divorced, whatever, we are all longing, aren't we, for a deeper 
purer, truer intimacy with one another and one with, with God. We're all frustrated. We all wish it was just right. And it isn't. Take that frustrated love and let it drive your hearts upwards and forwards. Drive your hearts upward to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we grasp together how long and wide and high and deep his love is. As we grasp what it would mean to truly say of him, I am my beloved, I belong to Jesus, I am my beloved. And his desire is for me. He loves me, his desire is for me. Let it pull our hearts upwards. And let that frustration pull our hearts forwards. Forward to that day when Jesus Christ returns and the curse is fully and finally lifted. That day where for every single one of us, if we're in Christ, there will be no more if-onlys. There'll be no more I-woulds. Only the resounding I-do of Christ to his church and his church to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that we can say of you, our beloved, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Would we take all the frustrations that we face in our loves, in our lives, in our relationships, bring them to you, pull our hearts (laughs) upwards and forwards, and by your grace, through your spirit, would we be filled with your love that we might give ourselves in love to others. Amen.